I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. You don't think that it's time that somebody cared enough to have a dream? Why are you getting so upset? This is not about you. Yes, it is. You are a human affront to all women and I am a woman. At some point, you gotta decide for yourself who you are. Can't let nobody make that decision for you. How do you go about getting an exorcism? Beg your pardon? Hi, this is Mark Kermode. Thanks for downloading this Kermode on Film podcast. This week, our show comes live from the BFI South Bank, where I do my monthly MK3D show. I'm currently in the auditorium just before the show. It's going to be packed. We've got a fabulous lineup of guests on this week's show. We have Joe Cornish, director of Attack the Block and The Kid Who Would Be King. Nadine Labaki, whose Capernaum has just been nominated for an Oscar, the stars and the director of the forthcoming British film Jellyfish, and Steve Coogan, telling us all about his current release, Stan and Ollie, and the film that changed his life. Is it? <laughs> you know, why did I kind of know that would be the case? Is it too year to do? Is it too too late to do Happy New Year, or is it too too year to do Happy New Late? <laughs> Shall I go out and pretend that I hadn't come in before? <laughs> da 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 da. Boom. <laughs> Is it too late to do Happy New Year? <laughs> anyway, uh, we have a fantastic and uh, super packed show for you to uh, begin a new year. This is the beginning of our. How many years now? Have we done three? Is this the beginning of the fourth year? It's the beginning of our fourth year. We've done three whole years here. I am... I think... I think that is longer than Celine Dion's residency in Vegas. I'm not entirely sure, but... All right, so, uh, on to our first uh, regular section. This is uh, the film that changed my life. Now, I am very pleased to say that coming up soon in uh, UK cinemas... We have uh, The Kid Who Would Be King. Have we got a poster for The Kid Who Would Be King? Which I just saw the other day. I saw it in a preview theatre. It was one of those weird things when you see a film in a preview theatre, you're the only person in the, in, in the cinema. And it means that, you know, what, the way you react is, that is completely you know, uninfluenced by everybody else in the audience because it's just you. And I, I really, really liked it. Here's the trailer for The Kid Who Would Be King. Help! Somebody help me! Hey, leave him alone. It's a tough world out there. And it's getting tougher all the time. <laughs> and the world is not going to change. Hello? Is anybody here? It's you that has to change. Something amazing happened. You have to see what I found. There's something written on the guard. Put it into Google Translate. It means Sword of Arthur. What if it's the sword in the stone? Please welcome the director of The Kid Who Would Be King, Joe Cornish. Of your choice of I want to. I want to point out. I, there's not. It's not like a kind of. Is this too physically close? There's. There's. A, there's. Back away. Let's let's build up to it. I could yeah, start yeah. here and move closer. <laughs> or further away. Should we away? sort of do it depending on how well the interview's going, that we either move closer or further away from each other? Joe, I have to start by saying that I very much enjoyed the film, and congratulations. You made Attack the Block, and you came on the Radio 5 show when Attack the Block came out. Uh-oh. No, 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 it's not uh-oh at all. And, and, you, and I, I, people often raise this. Well, Joe Cornish came on, and he gave you a right earwagging and uh, I always said well no but that's you know that was a, I thought it was a it was a perfectly full and frank exchange of views which I always thought it was and um, I went back and watched Attack the, Attack the Block again uh, just before we did this this uh, this interview and how long ago was it now? 
Um, it was 2011 it came out, okay. so the interview would have been 2011, which is, what is eight minus one? <laughs> what is nine minus one? Eight. <laughs> anyway. I'm not here for my skill anyway, at maths. Here's the thing. What's the statute of limitations on apologies? Because you were right and I was wrong. Oh, well, God bless you. That's very kind of you. What, uh, what, you know, Attack the Block, amongst other things, gave the world John Boyega. That was his first... His first one. Did he do it before the TV series? It was his first film role, yeah. It was his first role in front of a camera, wow. full stop. So we saw him in a play at what used to be called the Tricycle Theatres, now called The Kiln, for some weird reason. <laughs> the Kiln? A place where they cook talent, oh, I yeah. suppose. <laughs> yeah. um, I thought you said it was called The Kill. No. No. Uh, <laughs> uh, so he had a very small walk-on part in a play, and yeah, and, and Attack the Block was the first thing he'd done. And he's done quite well, don't you think? <laughs> Off the back of that? Did you feel a huge surge of pride when that first Star Wars trailer broke and his face was the... Because that was a sort of... <gasps> wow. Yeah, I think that's an amazing cultural moment, full stop, when John's face pops up in, the, in that very first beat in the trailer yeah. for The Force Awakens. And yeah, it was amazing. You know, I don't want to take too much credit because... I think the best way to put it is we opened a door for him and then entirely through his own talent and drive he then bolted through the door all the way to the stars. That's very um, <laughs> but but, but the, one, of the point, one of the things that motivated me to make the film and one of the things that was enjoyable about making the film was to give an opportunity because we had five unknown kids yeah. in that movie and, and, and to give an opportunity and to, to, to hopefully find somebody who could capitalise on it as a launch pad. Now, uh, once again, in, in uh, Kid King, you're dealing with, uh, you know, young heroes. And I, one of the things I, I very much like about Kid Will Be King is I like the fact that you actually appear to like all the central characters. It's set up at the beginning that they're all at each other's throats. Some of them are bullies, some of them are bullied. And yet the, the sort of the message of the movie is that they, that they, come, that they come together. And you are very kind of... Enthusiastic about the young generation, aren't you? You do think that the future lies in their hands, and you feel positive about that. I'm like Whitney Houston. Yeah, <laughs> I believe the children of the future. Well, it's a film. The, the 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 premise of the film is a normal British boy that discovers the sword in the stone. Yeah. And so the legend of the sword in the stone, you know, the Arthurian legend is a time when Britain is divided. All the, there's no king. All the tribes are warring. And then King Arthur turns up and unifies everybody, turns his enemies into allies. Yeah. And so uh, that's the story we tell, but we tell it in a modern context. And so this kid has to turn his enemies into his allies. He has to follow the chivalric, the chivalric, no, hello. Chivalric. The chivalric code, I can't even say it. Um, so it's about bringing all these kind of moral codes into the modern world and seeing how kids respond to them. Uh, so it's part of the story that it elevates its young characters into uh, a kind of position of heroicness. Yeah. But it is a common denominator between both films that, you know, Attack the Block was a film about a, a, a young criminal who then became a hero at the end. This film's about a boy who's a nobody who saves the world. And I think it's because those are the movies I liked when I was a kid. One of the things, I mean, watching it just now in the middle of everything that's going on, it felt like a, the right movie for the time. It felt really encouraging to see a film that said, you know, if everybody, if particularly the young generation, put the differences aside and work together, everything can be well. And I was thinking, I'm sure that when it gets reviewed, people will say, you know, a tonic for Brexit and everything. But that, none of that can have been happening when you were putting it, because the, the, the idea dates back to when you yourself were a kid. Yes, when I was 13, which was a very, very long time ago. It was the 1940s, wasn't it? It was in the 1940s, yeah. It was a very exciting period. Um, <laughs> Uh, no, it's so, 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 you know, people who are of a similar generation to me will remember in the 80s that even if you were a little kid, stuff happening in the adult world kind of bled through. You'd turn on the TV and it would be Frankie Goes to Hollywood doing Two Tribes. You'd, you'd watch Raymond Briggs's When the Wind Blows. You'd go into central London if you lived in London or other cities in Britain and uh, there would be IRA bomb scares all over the underground and stuff. So weirdly, it feels like there's always a weird sense that the sky's about to fall on our heads. Right. And when you're young, however much you try and bury your head in, uh, you know, games and escapism, it does filter through. And especially to kids today, I think, because of everyone's online and, and, you know, you glimpse the news and stuff, 
So this is a story about a kid who feels the weight of the world on him and actually has to carry that weight and then defeat it. And it's meant as a sort of empowerment fable for a younger generation who might look at us and think, well, they're fucking it up. <laughs> you know what I mean? Rightly so, probably. Joe, I, mean, I, I really like the film, and I wish you all the best. It, it does seem to, be to have a very uh, British sensibility. I don't know what international critics are like, but I think it will touch a nerve here, and I think it will do really well. Thank you. We asked you to choose a movie that was very important to you. We used to have a thing which is guilty pleasures, and everybody ended up saying, I'm not guilty about any of my pleasures, so in the end we gave in. You know, and said, okay, fine, you can have a movie that changed your life. What was the movie that you chose for the movie that changed your life? Well, this was a movie that I saw with uh, two of my best friends, Adam Buxton, who does a, a popular rival podcast. No, not rival, uh, uh, coterminous. Well, yeah, just you know. get some drama into it. Yeah. Okay, yeah, 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 <laughs> me and him. Uh, and Louis we, we, we used to be on, I'm right remembering this, didn't we used to be on ra the radio at the... Almost the same. Well, time. I was the Radio Four critic for a little bit, for about a year on okay. on on back row. Yeah, whatever it was called. Yeah, yeah. And so we've, we've been like at each other's throats like for years. It's a brutal scene. It is very homoerotic. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's a bit like um, what's that uh, movie where the, 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 they wrestle? Uh, women in Love. That's right. It's a bit like Women in Love. But in cheaper okay. suits. Okay, so I'm Oliver Reed and you're Alan Bates. Yeah. Okay. Thank you. And that makes Nick Ken Russell. Well done. Well done. This is hot stuff. It is, yeah. Okay, so. So the movie I've chosen, I went to see when I was about 18 in New York with Louis and Adam. And we'd never heard of it before. We read something in a newspaper the night before that said it was this film that had come out of the blue and nobody uh, and it was amazing we went to a cinema in downtown new york i think we smoked some herbal tobacco before we went so we were in a really good place to see it we were 18 and the movie was die hard uh, directed by john mctiernan there it is yeah and this is an amazing film and and, and the reason i've chosen it is because it, i think it changed my life a little professionally because it made me think about screenwriting yeah and it's a sort of super simple and brilliant way to learn about screenwriting, to watch this film, for, for, for a few very basic reasons. The first is that the, the physical structure of the building is the physical structure of the story. Yeah. So it really shows you the nature of constructing a story in a very sort of um, three-dimensional living way. Mm -hmm. And then it brilliantly introduces this handful of characters, one by one, with very simple little character premises in them. And then almost like you're weaving a thing that you weave. <laughs> uh, almost like you're weaving a, wo a woven thing. <laughs> Tapestry. It weaves them together and, and, just, and it, it, it basically touches on every character at about a 20 minute yeah. interval, builds everything to a beautiful climax and, and you know, it taught me, because uh, I was very, I took myself very seriously and was very into European films when I was a young teenager. I mm. loved Louis Malle and Truffaut and thought I was a, the bee's knees and was very snotty. And then I, I also loved Hollywood stuff, but I saw this and I thought, wow, that is, there's something going on there that's almost like watching an x-ray of a film. Yeah. You, oh, wow. you, can, you can see the structure so clearly. And I think it's influenced both Attack the Block in, 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 in the way I use the block and all the different characters that weave through that. Um, also a little bit uh, The Kid Who Would Be King, as well as being just incredibly entertaining and probably one of the best action yeah. movies ever made. Based on a novel, of course, which uh, is also actually a very well-written novel. I remember seeing this for the first time in Newcastle and I saw it for exactly the same reason as you. I had read a review which said, I know this sounds dumb, but Cowboys and Indians in the Towering Inferno turns out to be a really, really brilliant idea for a film. Well, the guy that wrote that book he wrote uh, a novel called The Detective that was made into a film with Frank Sinatra. And this was his sequel to that novel. And he wrote it after he'd seen The Towering Inferno. He had a sort of a dream about being chased through The Towering Inferno by guys with guns. And that inspired him to write the sequel. OK, so since, we're, since we're playing nerd one-upmanship, what were the two books on which The Towering Inferno was based? Uh, I don't know. The Tower and yeah. The Glass Inferno. Very yeah, good. There we go. You win. <laughs> So, Joe, which clip have you chosen? I've chosen a clip from, it's about the one hour mark, and it is Detective Al Powell, I think his name is, has just received a call from the Nakatomi Plaza, uh, <laughs> uh, suspected gunfire, 
Uh, he doesn't think there's anything major going on. <laughs> Meanwhile, Bruce has uncovered, you know, has realized that the, the, the siege has taken place, yeah. the hostages have been taken. Bruce is on his own, he's being chased. So this just shows you how they weave in this character of the cop, how they push forward the other two plots, Bruce being alone and the terrorists, and then how the three of them converge. And we're also reminded that it's a Christmas movie because there are little callbacks all the way through to yeah. It, it, yeah, I don't understand this debate. There isn't a debate. Really. There isn't there a debate. Isn't. It is a Christmas it's set movie. At Christmas, yeah. Yeah. We put it in our secret to cinema Christmas special. Bruce Willis doesn't know nothing. He was just in the film. It is a Christmas movie. Anyway, okay. here's the clip. You are done. No more table. Where are you going, pal? Next time you have a chance to kill someone, don't hesitate. Thanks for the advice. Sorry to waste your time. No problem at all. Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas to you. Oh, the weather outside is frightful. Dum da dum, delightful. For the love. Hey, Lincoln 30 to dispatch. 8030, go ahead. Yeah, that's a wild goose chase over here at Nakatomi Plaza. Everything here is okay. Over. But nobody has no place to go. Let it snow, let it snow, let it snow. Dead goddamn fingers and One of the things that's so great about that is actually you forget how funny Die Hard is. You forget how well-timed those comic beats are. Yeah. I mean, you know, that thing about, you know, thanks for the advice. It's really... And even the moment when he says, oh, for the love of, you know, rather than Melon yeah. Farm or whatever, it, 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 is, it is delivered with a comedian's timing. Yeah, I, I have a theory that all good movies are comedies. I don't think there's a single good movie that doesn't have comedy in it. There's probably some Bergman that isn't that funny. <laughs> <laughs> But e even, you know, The Shining, one of the scariest movies ever made, has comedy in it. Oh, that, no, The Shining definitely yeah. does. I'm sure I can think of examples of movies that don't have comedy in, but The Shining definitely has comedy. Yeah. I, think, I think most great movies. Because, in fact, one of the stories behind this that relates to that is that when Joel Silver first got the novel, the novel was about terrorists, not about criminals. Yeah. And McTinn and Anne Joel Silver said it can't be about terrorists. It's got to be fun. And one of the things they did while they were rewriting it is to put comedy and put fun into it because they wanted people to have a good time on a Friday night. So that was very important to them. Do you have this as a Christmas ritual? Is this one of the things that you watch every year? No. <laughs> I don't. I, 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 you know, I rewatched it for today. I, I, it's one of those films I know so well. You have run out of table, was <laughs> it say? Um, it, it's, it, I just, you know, it, it's just indelibly in, in, in my brain. And, and sometimes it's nice not to watch a film for five or six years because yeah. you come back to it and it feels... But also you forget, how, you forget how great Alan Rickman's performance is because I mean, I think it was the first time I'd seen Rickman you know, on the big show. And it is, it is astonishingly good. The whole hands grip, where am I detonated stuff is brilliantly done. And again, he is really funny. Well, there's all the stuff when he's talking to McLean on the, you know, the walkie-talkie. It's a, it's a very comic performance, but really menacing. Yeah, and, and this this came in the wake of all those big Schwarzenegger and Stallone, macho 80s. Like the standard thing in that period was, was Commando and Predator and all these ridiculous muscle-bound Reaganite. So to have a kind of blue-collar hero like that that was so physically vulnerable, to have this kind of European sophisticated intelligent villain was quite innovative at the time. It felt very different. And in fact, the, the, his, the, the terrorist hench people, the sort of sexy fashion terrorists, <laughs> which I remember, they, they, they're more a sort of ironic reference to movies that had gone before. Yeah. But, 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 but Willis and uh, Rickman are, 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 are kind of a very new style of hero for the and McTiernan genre. went on, I'm right in thinking of this, McTiernan directed Last Action Hero, right? Yes, written which, by one of the same writers. Which has got that brilliant line in it in which Arnold Schwarzenegger is doing Hamlet, and he says, to be or not to be, not to be, and the castle <laughs> blows up behind him. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But it's, I know, I think it's, I think it's a really great film, and I, I do think its influence is, is evident in Attack the Block. So, uh, the kid who would be king is out a couple of weeks. Uh, no, February the fifteenth. Okay, so yeah. like a month. Oh yeah. no, that's Three a couple weeks. of weeks. 
Three weeks? Yeah. You're quibbling. It's out quite soon. Three weeks. Okay. And <laughs> what would you say to people that they should expect from the film if you kind of, you know, encouraging an audience? Well, it's a kid's movie. It plays incredibly well to 7 to 13, 14-year-olds. So if you have a family, bring them along. The kids will like it. Hopefully you'll like it as well. Uh, and just pay to see it. Pay double if you want to. <laughs> pay triple. Book out a whole cinema. Stretch your legs. And the, and the, 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 the young star of it, I am right in thinking that that is Andy Serkis's son yeah. because he looks uncannily like, yeah, like his father. There's, there's two offspring of famous people. There's Louis Ashbourne Circus playing the lead, who is uh, Andy's son, and then Celia Imrie's son, Angus Imrie, plays the young Merlin, who's, who, who is extraordinary. I think he's a real breakout yeah, performance. I am an ordinary teenager. Yeah. Yeah. Congratulations yeah. on the film, Joe. I really enjoyed it, and thanks so much for coming on the show. Ladies and gentlemen, Joe Cornish. Thank you. Thank you, Thank you. Thank you so much. This is, this is such a powerful film. It's such an affecting piece of cinema. Many people I know who've seen it as, felt as affected by it as I have. I predict that it's, it's on the road to awards victory. We're really thrilled to say that tonight on the show we have the director of Capernaum, Nadine Labaki. Please come to the stage. Choice of seats wherever, wherever you feel you... most comfortable. That's yeah, fine. this is great. Then congratulations on the movie. Firstly, since I was talking about awards, do the awards nominations matter? How seriously do you take them? Uh, for for this film in particular, yes, it does matter very much because it will uh, give it uh, the right platform for for it to be discussed among people, for it to be seen by um, as many people as possible for it to be I mean we, this kind of movie I think needs the spotlight it needs it's going to be if if we do uh, win or the more we have nominations uh, of this kind the more light is being shed on the problem and the more visible the invisibles will will become and and the bigger the voice their voices will resonate yeah. maybe not uh, a lot of people have seen the film but no well many won't because it's obviously it doesn't open here for a few weeks i know it has played some festivals do you want to say a little bit about what the film's about yeah, so it was very much inspired by um, lately the fact that we've seen a lot of kids um, being, you know, in a way deprived from their most basic rights with the, of course, the Syrian refugee uh, crisis uh, growing more and more. Uh, the fact that I'm Lebanese, I live in a country that has hosted over a million and a half refugees until now. So the, the problem is really, really big, and, and Lebanon is a very small country. It's really, if you look at the map, it's really a small invisible dot on the map. So, so we've, proportionally to, to its population, it's almost half of the population. So it's very hard. So we're seeing it reflecting um, on our daily lives, the, 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 the situation we're struggling, Lebanese people are struggling, Syrian refugees are struggling, and we see it reflecting mostly on children, because this is what I think shocks us the most. When we see kids being neglected, being uh, working, when you see kids, you know, on the streets everywhere, and we're, talking, we're not talking about hundreds of kids, we're talking about thousands of kids. We're talking about seeing this every day you know, whether we're, we're going, uh, driving to work or coming back from, I mean, this is a site that we are uh, exposed uh, uh, with every day. So I think, in a way, uh, it's putting the problem out there. I, I was thinking, you know, what goes on in the heads of those children um, that feel so invisible? Because uh, unfortunately, this is what we do. We, we keep going because we think that the problem is too big, we don't know where to start with it, so we just keep going, whether we're driving or walking, and we get, you know, we, 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 we see those kids sometimes running behind our cars, but we don't even look their way. We act as if they're not there, and he's running behind us, and we're just going, keep going. And I think, at, I felt at one point, how does it feel to be so invisible for him? And this is what ignited this whole journey. And I was very much also moved by the, of course, you, you, you all saw the, the picture of um, 
Alan Kurdi, the small refugee child who was found dead on the shores of Turkey a few years ago. And I remember thinking, you know, uh, if this child could talk, what, what would he say? What would he tell the world? Uh, how would he address us, you know, the adults that have failed him? Because, you know, he, he paid the highest price. He, these kids are paying the highest price for our faults and our uh, conflicts and our wars and our bad decisions and stupid governments sometimes, stupid systems sometimes, and it's, I don't know, we need to do something about it. So I just decided, I want to do something about it. I, 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 of course, I'm not going to solve the problem, but at least I want to use whatever I know to do something about it, and I made a film out, out, out of it. I just wanted, in a way, to become their voice, and I started this journey of research with my co-writers, um, because I felt that I wasn't entitled to, to, to imagine the story or to imagine what goes on in the lives of those kids. And it's, this is how it started. So it started by talking to many, many, many children and also talking to their parents, understanding the point of view of the parents, understanding the point of view of the whole community of this community of invisible people who end up living on the margins of our societies because they're not visible. We don't want to see it. We don't want to see the problem. We don't want to acknowledge it because I think it's sometimes too big. It's too overwhelming. So I decided in a way to put a face to it, to, to humanize it. And it took the face of, of a little boy in this film who is going to sue his parents for giving him life. Because he was, he's obviously suing the whole world, not only his parents, because he's, he's in a way saying, you don't deserve me. You, 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 you've created this chaos. This is what Capernaum means, actually. It's, it's, it means chaos. Yeah. And you, deserve, you don't deserve us. So, I mean, obviously, you know, you're an actor, as we saw there, and you've directed before films like Caramel and Where Do We Go Now. Do you think that being an actor enables you as a director to get those kind of performances out of your cast because your cast are fat. I mean, this film is so moving and there's not a wrong foot in the performances. Do you think that's because you were an actor? I think it does play a big role, I think, because um, when you're an actor, you actually know what to expect from the director you're working with. You know, you know what to expect from this relationship. Mm -hmm. And... And I think uh, it allows you to really understand it because you're, you're in it, you're in those shoes. So when you are in the place of the, the director, you actually know what the, the actor is expecting from you. you, you know. But in this case, it's, it's, it's very different also because those kids are not actors. So they are real people uh, who have been having the same situation almost in their real life, a similar situation, similar experience. So what, what helps me is trying um, to draw in their own experience also, to collaborate with them in the process, to make them feel like they're part of it, they're part of it, because you can't expect, uh, you can't expect a child to, uh, that has no experience whatsoever to do whatever you want them to do when you want them to do it. Yeah. It's impossible. You can't expect to say action and they're, they're in it. So you have to, in a way, know how to ignite those situations for them to react the right way. Uh, and because you're working with very raw nature, a raw uh, nature that hasn't been altered by society's codes, and societies, you know, by politics and hypocrisy and, and what you should be and what you shouldn't be. They're just raw nature. And actually, kids make the most sense. When they react the right way, they make the most sense. They can be the best actors in the world because there's no uh, artif uh, uh, artifice. Yes, artifice in there. There's nothing. There's just pure purity. There's this real purity. So you have to just know how to create the right situation 
for them to react the, the right way. Yeah. And it was all about that the whole time. Well, it's, I mean, it's, it's clearly worth it. The film has worked out magnificently and the reviews have been superb and the uh, you know, awards recognition, as you say, is important. Um, of all the things about the film, what are you most proud of? I'm the most, I think, proud of my actors who, you know, a few months ago before we finished the film and while we were doing the film, they were invisible in their real life. They were struggling to exist in this life. Most of them are illegal, no papers. So for, for, for them to be able to collaborate so much in this whole process and to be able to put their struggle out there and to talk about their struggle in the film and to collaborate in the process, they felt that they were part of this mission. Each one of them was really representing and being the voice of those voiceless communities that they were representing. So to be applauded and to be recognized for the same reasons this time on such big platforms, it's, it's, it's an amazing victory. So I'm, I'm really proud of them for what they were able to do. Yeah. And I'm also very proud, of course, of my, my team, you know, because it's been a very, very difficult journey. It's, it was a life-changing experience for each one of us. You know, even physically we changed. You know, my, my, my DP at the end of the, he didn't have, his, his beard fell off. <laughs> he has like, my, my husband started the, with, no white, with no white hair on his beard. Now his whole beard is white. My, my editor has like problems in his eyes now. It's like, it's, it's, it, was, uh, it was very, very difficult. Well, I have to say all those sacrifices are more than worth it. The film is a terrific piece of work. It opens here in a few weeks' time. It's called Capernaum. Ladies and gentlemen, please join me in thanking the magnificent Thank you. Thank you so much. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Okay, so I, I told you that it was, a, it was an absolutely packed uh, show. So um, we're going to stay with uh, coming attractions. Here is a trailer for a British movie which has been getting an awful lot of attention, has been playing festivals and winning awards. It's coming out in a very short period of time. Here's the trailer for Jellyfish. You know when I gave you this job, it was with a view to you going full-time. It just makes me think, Sarah, that... I don't know that you've got somewhere else that's more important to you. Stand up. I am standing up. Your act. I want you to go figure out what comedy is. I couldn't get tickets for the synchronised swimming, so instead I watched a woman drown through a kaleidoscope. All you have to do is sign on, the rent gets paid, and I, I look after the rest. I can get a job. They want employees a speed bump. Please welcome from Jellyfish director James Gardner and stars Cyril and Rhee and Liv Hill. <laughs> Guys, congratulations on the film. Uh, Liv, we actually, we met last week um, at the very, very glamorous uh, London, London Critics Circle Awards. Yeah. And, uh, and you were saying, you, you asked me at the time, you said, have you seen the film yet? Which I hadn't. And uh, you're agent who is the agent for gorgeous George Mackay yeah yeah that's right she said live one <laughs> having now seen the film I'm very very impressed by it it was a really terrific piece of work and what a fabulous performance um 
Tell us about that central role and about that character that you play, because it's, it's not an easy character to play. Uh, no, so for those who haven't seen it or don't know, it's basically centres around this girl called Sarah Taylor, and she's a young carer for her brother and sister, because her mum is... I don't know what the right term for it, bipolar, or, yeah, some, and, um, and she's having a tough time at school as well, and basically her teacher um, sees her very frustrated and very bitter in school, she hasn't got many friends, and then she finds stand-up comedy, he introduces to her stand-up comedy as a, a way of an escapism, yeah. basically, yeah. And had, had, had you'd never done any form of stand-up before, because the film obviously builds towards the, the, the possibility that you will do a stand-up act. You didn't have any... No. no um, you didn't do the full Robert De Niro of going out and doing the oh, circuit no. pretending to be somebody else. <laughs> no, I mean, it was, it was sort of... I suppose the magic is in the, in the dialogue. It's in what James and Simon wrote. And I just performed on a stage to a real audience, by the way. And it was really scary. <laughs> I read a thing that said that on the morning of one of the days of shooting, that you were suddenly presented that you'd rewritten the script. Was that that wasn't for the for the comedy monologue? You said suddenly you had five. It was it. It was for the comedy yeah. mon uh, comedy monologue. So you learned the whole thing, and then you went. I've written another one. Yeah. Um, so Thanks. <laughs> to be fair, it was his best. I think it was their best um, script so far, so actually I was quite relieved. Um, but no, it was, it was, it probably kept it fresh. I had this really amazing editor on it, she was just amazing and she just went, and also Cyril, I didn't really know you very well. And he just came up to me and he just went, say it again, no, say it again, say it again until I... So you did take over a kind of teaching role? Um, yeah, I, I suppose sort of. Um, I, I don't know, Live, we're with the same agency in fact and... Um, um, now known as gorgeous, gorgeous George's agent. <laughs> yeah, just, just, just okay. quick, you know. um, yeah, we're with the same agent, and um, thank It's it sort of, I don't know, it sort of all works seamlessly. I actually met James here at the BFI um, way, way before um, anything else was on the ground, and um, what you met socially, or you met? We met work? because he, I don't know, he'd seen something, and he he'd phoned the agent, and anyhow, we we got talking, and at that point. Um, they hadn't found the, you know, they hadn't found Liv, and um, so we got talking. And the character, the drama teacher character, is not unlike the drama teacher that I had at school, and okay. it's really the reason that I ended up going into um, going into acting. And um, when I was growing up, I had my own issues, and he spotted one morning very early in school and you know yeah. and so there were lots of bits of the script that I went oh wow okay so that's you know I still see this drama teacher he lives in an island and you know every so often and do you we, regularly we credit chat. him with your success um pretty much yeah yeah um yeah um you know he actually does the job of you know I mean he worked in theatre and whatever he used to run the Battersea <laughs> Arts Centre and things but I don't know. Um, through through me coming on board, and then there was a long time of finding money and it going back and forth and scripts and whatever. And James mentioned to my agent that he still hadn't found because we were worried about yeah. other bookings. And she said, "Let me read it again." And she did. And that night, she contacted um, James to say, "Oh well, I'm sending you two possibilities." And Liv had just joined the agency at that point, and. Um, and yeah, she was just wow. so it, it all sort of worked seamlessly. So I, I don't know the, the also working with that number of children, you know, and it was sort of it was very 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 low budget, um, no budget um, film. And um, but, so, but I imagine that for both of you, yeah. I mean, despite the fact that there's no budget, one of the, the big attractions would have been Margate, which is obviously comes across so well in the film, James. <laughs> Tell us about Margate. <laughs> I, I love Margate. Uh, so you are from Margate? Uh, no, but I've been going up and down for about 20 years. Okay. Yeah. Um, in a former life, I was a professional skateboarder. Yeah. And when, you say, when you say professional skateboarder, you mean you did it for a living? A, a, a tiny <laughs> living. I kind of paid my way through uni. My, I used to ride for a shoe company called Vans, and they had their... Um, Yep, like them. I'm down with the kids. I am so down <laughs> with the kids. So my, my team manager at the time, and he was the first guy to ever recognise my, 
quote unquote talent as a skateboarder and he was he, he lived in Broadstairs so that was I, I was 14 and that was my first uh, trip trip down uh, to the Isle of Thanet he, he was the team manager at Vans and every time um, the the samples that had been around the country for the shops had, had been out they'd come back to the warehouse in Hammersmith and him and I would drive there in his transit van stock up as fit as much as we could in the van and then I would go back to my halls of residence and then list it all on eBay and that was how I paid my way through university <laughs> were you were, were you a very good skateboarder uh, I was okay so Liv um it's it's some of the subject matter is very dark. I mean, we've, the, the trailer is, you know, it's nice we see this, but there is some very, very dark stuff in this. Um, what were the challenges? What were the biggest challenges of the role? Um, I mean, I, I think it was probably, because I was 16 at the time when I did it. And so how long ago was it that you shot now? So two, two, October 2016. So I feel like I've grown a lot because I've, I've I still feel I'm a bit innocent now, but I was even more so when I was 16. I think it was the a lot a lot of it's alluded to, but the sort of the sort of the what Sarah does to earn money, mm -hmm. the, the sexual stuff, and I had to get my head round that about how desperate she would have to be, and um, and so that was probably the hardest part. But I think when she is doing that stuff in the film, it's almost like there's an emotional detachment yeah. there. Um, because that's the only way you can get through it. You just, it's just a technicality, and it was it was fine to shoot because they had great uh, people on the, on the set. But um, and also the film, like her character, manages to keep a kind of like it puts a, a, a brave face on things. I mean, she's ve she's got a lot of front. Mm. She's got a, you know she chin forward, yeah. and she from the very very beginning we see her giving as good as she gets in an argument in school. She's a she's a tough character. She's not a victim. No. <coughs> Um, I just think it's sort of it's, sort, it's interesting because also she is fifth, she's 15 in there and that is the age where you start thinking about university or, mm -hmm. or not university but you know you think about a life beyond school and for her she just has no other <laughs> she just can't even think about that and so I think a lot of it is bitter and that's why there is this front yeah. it's just and eventually it's, it's just released through the comedy. When did you all first see the film with an audience? When did you know that it was working and that it was being well received? Um, it was probably, we had a Margate premiere actually. Mm. Um, How did it go down in Margate? Uh, well, it was just cast and crew. So I oh, okay. It went out fabulous. It was amazing. Yeah, was <laughs> um, but no, I think it was just, it was collective. Everyone was, we had, it was done for hardly any money. So everyone was passionate about doing it because they didn't get paid. And so it was just this lovely atmosphere of everyone just, even if it didn't, if, even if it wasn't successful, it had come together and we were really proud of it. Should be said, I think 90% of the crew are in the film. In the various <laughs> yeah. There was a story uh, that you couldn't afford extra, so you just rounded up 50 random people and said you want to yeah. be in a film. Is that right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. That's, that's that, that we just kind of gathered them up, promised them sandwiches. But um, bless Liv, she actually got a real heckler. Um, when she was doing the performance for the first time because oh, wow. I didn't want the um, audience to know what what we were really doing. So they sat down and as if a real comedian was going to come on stage and, and, and deliver. So and you got really heckled? Yeah. How was it? Um, terrifying. <laughs> <laughs> I think if I was, if I was in character, so I sort of brushed it off as Sarah would do, but if that was really me, I would have cried. <laughs> so because you were in character, if you, when you were dealing with a heckler, you could just, you could, you could front it out and you could, because you were in character? Yeah, well, yeah, it's, it's totally a mask. I love it, being in character. Would you ever do stand-up as a kind of, you know, now that you can do it, you've yeah, seen now the hecklers? Um, never. Never? <laughs> <laughs> no, um, I have a lot of respect for comedians, though, because I think it's very, um, it's very vulnerable and you've got to be really intelligent. So. You, I can't tell you how well you're setting up our next guest. This is, it's <laughs> almost like I planned this. So, uh, Jellyfish opens in UK cinemas February the 15th. Uh, do go along and see it. It's a very, very powerful piece of work. Please join me in thanking Liv, Cyril and James.
Nick, I think we'll crack, we'll crack straight on since I've overrun because I've never been known for brevity. I just said rather wonderfully that Liv had brilliantly set up our next guest, which she did. Please welcome to the stage the magnificent Steve Coogan. some slapstick yeah <laughs> Steve welcome to the show lovely to have you I should begin by saying that you and I first met in Manchester in the 1980s when and I'm eternally grateful for this you booked the skiffle band that I played in yeah, for a so do I think was it the green room yeah it, it, well no I, I, I think I was on the same bill as you at the green room about 30 just under 30 years ago uh, this was a period when bands and comedians <coughs> would do well, shows in together. The, in the late 80s, in the certainly there was an alternative cabaret event, uh, circuit in London, but in Manchester you either did working men's clubs who didn't understand observational comedy, um, <laughs> why aren't you telling jokes, and, uh, <laughs> or you could do arts venues, um, which was full of people who uh, you know, nodded appreciatively at your <laughs> thoughts and didn't laugh. <laughs> and, uh, or, uh, or you could support indie bands. That was the closest uh, it came to any kind of comedy circuit. So, uh, but no, with the, but one of the arts venues I played was a place called the Green Room, and you, I think, were on the same bill yeah. with the Railtown Bottlers. And um, but I did book you for a birthday party in Crumsall and paid you. I don't know what I must be paid the band two hundred quid or something. Like that. I, I, that sounds like more than I remember. I mean, I remember yeah. it was. Uh, we, we, but we, I'm adjusting you, it for inflation. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, but we were we were really grateful, and that you know the, the the band went on to end up having a, a a job as a house band on Danny's TV show, and I'm I'm convinced that it was your booking us for Crumsall birthday parties. So am I. <laughs> so Steve, uh, Stan and Ollie is currently in cinemas, and I I I really really like the film. I'm a huge fan of it. I thought it was lovely, and I I, I wrote a glowing review of it in the Observer, and then when you turned up. Now I said, "Oh, you know, hi Steve, how are you doing? You know, I love the film." And you went, "Oh, that's good." I went, "So you haven't? I thought you so you haven't read the review in the Observer." And I said, "Do you not read reviews?" Uh, well, I don't. I don't not read. I'm not one of those people who say I never read reviews. That's that's bullshit. Of course, if anyone says that, and uh, neither am I someone who to, who uh, um, who avariciously reads them. Um, I just uh, if someone says there's a good one. I think you sort of, as long as you don't, I think when people are also, if people say really, really nice things about you, yeah. uh, you shouldn't take, you should take that with a pinch of salt, and therefore when they say really horrible things about you, then you can, you, you can d dismiss that, but you, you, it's like a, it's a Faustian pact, if you, if you start to believe the hype, then you, you're going to get uh, a rude comeuppance, okay. so, 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 but, um, but if, someone, if there's a nice one, someone read, sends it to me, I'll read it, but I, I, someone said, Mark Comer's given us a good review, and I went, really? Uh, so, um, but uh, I was pleased. I was. I was. <laughs> um, uh, no, if Peter. I'm shocked if Peter Bradshaw reviews me well. But anyway. Yeah. Um, but uh, I think no, Peter did like it, didn't he? He did like it. Yes, yes. But, I, but in my mind, that's some sort of reverse psychology setting me up for when he's going to really attack me next time. <laughs> <Right>. <clears throat> um, uh, but. Uh, I'd yeah, like no, to point out that I, I no. went to school with Peter Bradshaw, and Peter once said, "You, you know, went to school with everyone." Didn't I did, yeah. <laughs> Peter once said, it, "You know, he said he said it's a fabulous thing because I went to school also with uh, with with Jay Rayner." And Peter said, "You know, it's 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 brilliant. It shows what what you know how people say that the, the media is a is a is a a closed thing." He said, "No, it's not. The fact that we're we're all writing demonstrates that the Guardian don't care which year you were in in our school. It was absolutely <laughs> fine, you know." So. <laughs> Uh, we have a couple of clips to show from Stan and Ollie. I, I, I really love this film. One of the things I love most about it is I think the, the, the balance between the sweet and sour, between the comedy and the pathos is just right. And when you're dealing with Laurel and Hardy, the reason Laurel and Hardy work is because, yes, they're funny, but they're funny and sad at the same time. And I, I do think that the film really brilliantly mirrors that. We'll start with... Um, with a scene, this is fairly early on, in which they're having, as this is kind of like a, a, a row with Hal Roach, who is the producer who has brought them together and who Stan doesn't feel has adequately remunerated them for their efforts. What are you looking for, Stan? I'm looking for a fair price for a Laurel and Hardy picture, and you know it. Our pictures sell all around the world and we haven't got a dime. That's because we keep getting divorced. No, it's because you're a cheapskate who got rich off our backs. Oh, come on now, Stan. He is, he's a cheapskate, a skinflint and a, and a parvenu. A parvenu? He thinks because my contract's up and yours isn't that I won't be able to go anyplace else and I'll have to take what he's offering. Wait, 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 wait. Mr. Roach? 
What's a parvenu? Well, it's, it's someone who started out with nothing, got rich, but has no class. Look it up in the dictionary, Hal. There's a picture of you. Oh, you think you're some sort of smart ass, huh? Well, guess what? I'm smarter. Has she told you yet? We're setting up on our own. Hal, it might be best if you could see your way to a small raise. You're setting up on your own, huh? Well, how about this? Babe's still under contract with me, and I ain't releasing him. You can't have Hardy without Laurel. That's what you think. What for you is the key to finding your way into that character? Because obviously Stan Laurel is such an icon. How did you find your way into that character? Um, well, because uh, John S. Baird, who's sitting in the audience over there. This is the director? Uh, the director. Where are you, John? He's just there. There he is. Small Scottish man. <laughs> Big imagination. <laughs> um, he... Uh, uh, John, well, it, it's uh, because John sort of. Uh, it also became because John offered me the role. Uh, but uh, I was writing with Jeff Pope, who wrote the screenplay for Stan and Ollie, yeah. uh, who I've written with before. Philomena. Uh, yeah, I, I wrote uh, uh, Philomena about five years ago, and we, we wrote a couple of other films uh, along the way. And uh, he was writing this, and he said, Oh, I'm, I'm writing this film about Stan and Ollie. I was thinking, All right, and who are you going to cast? And he said, oh, we, we, We're not sure. And I was like, oh, Okay. Uh, and uh, he came out the next day and said, oh, someone mentioned your name. I was like, oh, that's interesting. Uh, that could work. Um, and, uh, and I went to meet uh, 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 John, the John, John S. Baird over there. And um, I, I just started doing a sort of, uh, doing, doing my, well, I could do a kind of, a, a sort of an impersonation, a kind of out-the-pocket kind of okay. jobby, which was a, you know, I'd, he has that sort of strange sort of, sort of mid-Atlantic accent that's half English and half, American, and um, and and all the sort of about five emotions that go through his. <laughs> so, so, but that was like, but that was sort of just that was that was like okay, well I can do that, and he went, wow, that's great. Uh, John said, oh my god, um, uh, and I, I said, well, I, it's you know, this, uh, and it's a fool's errand if you think that uh, that means you, you've got it, yeah. and and it can be a, a problem because it, it, of course uh, it can just be shtick. Yeah. Uh, you know, you have to listen to what the other person's saying uh, uh, to go beyond being a, uh, doing a comic caricature. Yeah. But for me, it was it, there's only so much material that exists. We, we all know what uh, Stan and Ollie are like um, on the, in the movies because we've seen them. But uh, there's not much material about them in their private lives. But uh, Stan Laurel, who retired virtually penniless because they were shafted by Hal Roach um, and didn't get any money from their TV shows in the, the, when they were sort of reborn on television. Mm. Uh, he retired to Santa Monica in the 1950s uh, and 60s after uh, Ollie, Ollie died. And, uh, but you could, he was still in the phone book, so people would ring him up and say, can, can I chat to you about Laurel and Hardy? And he would, he'd talk to people down on the phone for a long time about Laurel and Hardy, and he always responded to every fan letter that was uh, sent to him. But some people recorded the phone calls, so I was able to listen back to these phone calls oh, and, wow. and, and he'd listen to his... His attitude, and he, if anyone doesn't know, Stan Laurel was the sort of genius behind the partnership, and he was able to, um, you know, really, uh, you know, he, uh, the, the, the relationship that, that's explored on, on screen is uh, that Ollie was really, uh, Ollie w w worked to live, and, and Stan lived to work. Yeah. Uh, well, there's a, there's a conversation that when he says, you know, everyone loves you, you know, come and have spend time with Babe. Mm. I'm actually the person who was sleeping in the editing room. I was yes, the which, is, which, is, which is absolutely true. But he said, uh, in, in, uh, but that was, that was a, anyway, a key to, to finding out who he was. And it really, it was sort of working from the outside in because we have all this physical, physicality of him. And we heard the way he spoke when he spoke in his private life. Obviously, I thought, oh, he sounds a bit like... Stan Laurel. Well, uh, like people sometimes say to me, oh, you sound like Alan Partridge. I'm like, wow. Right. Uh, um, so, you know, so it's like, so, so I, we knew that, that, that in, his, in his private life there'd be some residue of, of yeah. his character. So, we, so that was a kind of, so you don't have all these clues and you try and work your way. It's, it's strange. It's like the opposite of method acting. You, you don't start and build your way out. You just start with the external stuff and try and figure out what's going on on the inside. Yeah. I want to show another clip, which actually in the film comes just shortly after this. This is reproducing the, the dance from, from way out west. And I, mean, I think it's a really lovely sequence, not least because the sequence itself is so iconic. And actually, so much of what Lauren Hardy was doing was physical comedy. Tell us about the challenges of do it, getting this 
exactly on point? Uh, well, it was something about, by the way, just on the phone calls from Stan Laurel, he said about when the, their physical comedy was, they, they managed to successfully straddle sound when sound was introduced. Yeah. And he says in one of these phone calls, he says, when sound was introduced, everyone started talking 10 to the dozen. And what they didn't do is they didn't take, they didn't throw the baby out with the bathwater. Yeah. They had a little bit of dialogue, but they hung on to the physicality, which is what made them funny. Uh, but. Uh, doing the dance, the Way Out West dance, was pretty tough because we had to learn the dance they did in the movie. And then we do a tour of Britain. When Stan and Ollie did a tour of Britain, we had to learn the dance, uh, two different dances. The dance they do on stage when they were older, 20 years older, and the dance they do uh, in the movie, yeah. which had mistakes. So we had to learn the mistakes uh, and put them in at exactly the right moment when Ollie gets two steps behind and catches up. And we didn't want, so we had to do it absolutely faithfully. Oh, I understand that because in this show, the mistakes that I do are all learned. I practice them <laughs> really, really hard. Let's have a look. And I'm what are you checking with that for? Well, you're the director. Direct! Oh. Next person you'll be hearing from is my lawyer. Positions, everyone! Comedy Western. Who came up with that smart idea? Well, that went well. So, uh, who else is going to be on this boat? Clark Gable, some other people. No, no, no. Women. Oh, Carol Lombard, she's friends with Werner. Oh, okay. I'm gonna come. Oh, good. All right, show's over. Let's uh, roll sound. I said roll sound. Speed. Roll camera. Ready, boys? Quiet, please. We're at West Scene 12. Take one. Oh, what's after the curtsies? Uh, after the curtsies, knee bend, then turn and shake. Got it. Camera set. <laughs> All right, back projection. Cue music. Action. Just watch your shoulders, snap your fingers, one and all in the hall. That's all, that's all. John Baird managed to track down the original back projection yeah. uh, that they had behind them when they were doing the dance, and we reused it. So that thing you're watching is exactly, it is the back projection that they use in the film. In the yeah. film, yeah. Wow. Mm. One of the things that I said in, in my review, which you didn't read, um, <laughs> was that it, the film felt like exactly the kind of tonic that, that we need at the moment, um, you know, in the same way that the film we were talking about at the very big beginning of the show, The Kid Who Would Be King, is like about you know, kids coming together, a brighter future. I, I was very aware watching uh, Stan and Ollie that, you know, for all the, the, you know, the rivalries, and the it, it is a film that genuinely makes you feel good. In a, you know, it's a yeah, it's very, it's actually, um, it's, 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 uh, it, it's not sort of reinventing history. It's quite a traditional way of making a film, actually. I think it's, um, it's just old-fashioned storytelling, uh, which uh, it, it sometimes feels like it's fallen out of fashion. What's uh, I think lovely about it is that uh, th there's no there's nothing there's no villainous in it. Because no. Sometimes you can feel that uh, to sort of celebrate love and friendship can be lowbrow or simplistic, and I think this uh, gives light to that and shows that you can tell a story that's engaging about two people who are essentially you know flawed but basically good people who um, and it's a uh, celebration of love and and uh, friendship and. Um, and it's funny as well. And also, they're, they're matched by the, the comedy of their wives. At one point, somebody says two double acts for the price of one. And there is this wonderful interaction between the wives at one moment. Um, when, uh, one of them says, oh, yes, I, you know, I, I, I used to be an actor. And says, dancer, actually, with a very high pain threshold. I mean, that, it, it's just such a brilliantly delivered line by Shirley Yes, Henderson. Shirley Henderson and uh, Nina Ariander were, were superb, I have to say, in the film. And it's very hard when you're playing a supporting role uh, to, uh, to, to, to invent something that's funny and, and, and uh, to put flesh on the bone. And they managed to... Um, there was some of it was on the page, but a lot of it was their own invention. They really brought those characters to life, and uh, and they have their own narrative in the film. Yeah, so yeah, absolutely. Now uh, we asked you to choose a film that had uh, changed your life, or a film that you were very passionate about, and you chose one which I think will be a favourite with many people in the room. What did you choose? Uh, Harold and Maud. Mm. So. Harold and Maud, brilliant soundtrack, fantastic work by the great Hal Ashby. What is it about the film that you love? Firstly, for those who, who, who may not know it, what's the, what's okay. the basic The sound? film is about a 16-year-old boy and a 79-year-old woman who have a relationship. And uh, they both uh, come together because they both enjoy, enjoy going to funerals of people they don't know. 
Um, and uh, it's a love story, uh, an unusual love story. And I saw it on TV. And we thank the BBC for curating oh, wow. uh, it, it, when I was uh, growing up. Uh, the, the BBC was a great uh, sort of, was partly, you know, part of my schooling, really, because they curated films and decided what to put on TV. And, yeah. and so I, it was like a portal to something uh, different. And I knew it was, it was entertaining and funny and disturbing and uh, different. And it captivated me to show that you, to show that there's a way of, uh, it has all the things I love in a, in a good film, which is it's unusual, um, uh, it's uh, 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 funny, but it's entirely truthful and engaging, and, and it, it's full of humanity, but but tells it in a very different novel way. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Um, we asked you to choose a, a, a clip, and you said just choose one of the death scenes because one of the the running gags is that Harold keeps staging his own his own death, and uh, so we chose a couple. We showed them to you. This is one that I, this is from fairly early on in the film. If you haven't seen uh, Harold and Maud, uh, this will give you a flavour of it. If you have, you will know and love this scene. I suppose you think that's very funny, Harold. Hello? Hello? Faye? Yes? Darling, be a dear and cancel my appointment with Renee this afternoon. I know he'll be furious. But I've had such a trying day. And with guests coming this evening. Oh, would you? That's sweet. Tell him I promise to be in on Tuesday. Thank you, Faye. You're done. Yeah. Bye. Bye. Oh, dinner at eight, Harold. And do try and be a little more vivacious. I first saw it at the, the Phoenix in East Finchley because it was one of those films that would be on the kind of on the rep circuit. Um, when you first saw it, did you find it funny or did you find Because I was quite alarmed by it the first time. I didn't know anything about the story. Uh, I, uh, find, I, I felt I had a great affinity with Harold uh, because uh, it was my, my sister went, went to America in the mid-'70s, and which we thought was this land of nod, you know, and came back telling us all about how, how amazing this country was and how they had pizza delivered to their front door. You know, we thought this was like mind-blowing. <laughs> and uh, and uh, she said, and there's this amazing film about a, a princess in space called Star Wars. And, but the whole, um, uh, she brought back a wax skin from uh, Universal Studios and, and blood. And so I used to put wounds on myself and uh, like, like a gash in my arm or vampire bites in my neck. And I actually once did a bullet hole uh, right in the center of my head between the eyes and just lay on the sofa <laughs> waiting to be discovered uh, by my father who walked in and looked at me and said, Stephen. And I was lying there like that. And I had the blood, I had the blood forked across my face and I made a crater from the skin with the bottle top and then put the tissue in so it looked like I'd been shot very neatly. And uh, I was lying on the sofa waiting, it was about 20 minutes, right, waiting for someone to find me. He said, Stephen, and, I, went, and I, I was kind of thinking, oh shit, he might think I'm actually been shot. You know, so I went, yeah. <laughs> he said, he just said, you're warped. And just left the room. But, um, so when I saw that, I was like, finally, see, look, it's a perfectly valid way to behave. And were you an Ashby fan for the rest of his films? I mean, you know, yeah, Coming yes. Home, which should have won when yeah, D. Hunter did. Of course, did of course. All his films have a, have a certain sort of, uh, uh, how can I describe it, a kind of an otherness to it. They're, yeah. they're sort of familiar, but there's something unsettling. And it walks that tightrope between comedy and tragedy where, where truth can, can be, uh, uh, can be uh, poignant and it can be funny. And the, mo the sweetest parts of a film, I think, are where tragedy and comedy intersect. And you kind of almost laugh through your tears. And that's a really sort of sweet, uh, visceral experience for an audience to have. Mm -hmm. and, and I think he, he manages to do that in a really uh, delicate, odd, funny way. Unsettling, but not for its own sake. Unsettling to, to, to wake you up, to make you feel alive when you're watching his films. I think, he, you know, there's Coming Home, is that being there, 
the the last detail. Yeah, is, I mean, uh, being there, I think, is actually the the, the least. I mean, that's the one that's the that's most the famous. But it's always, one. Yeah, yeah. But uh, but shampoo, last, which yeah, was I mean, fantastic. which, which is, a, is, is a great movie. And he he, I think he was the editor for um, for um, uh, uh, who directed the films with Sidney Poitier and, and uh, about the racist. Norman Jewison. The Norman Jewison. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, he he edited for him. And, did, and he did in the heat of the night and stuff. Yeah. He cut his teeth on that. So, and you can sort of see that in a lot of the. Should the point out this is things. why Nick is here because when you gesture towards me and I'm going blank, Nick goes Norman Jewish. I go Norman Jewish. Like I knew. You know, that's literally that there is. Um, so if when you look back at your own career, and you've had a, a fantastic uh, screen career. You've done, uh, you know, uh, Alpha Popper. You've done 24-hour party people in Philomena. Which, which, which are you most proud? Actually, Around the World in 80 Days, which I liked. Oh, no. I just, yeah. I thought I'd get through an evening without someone mentioning that. I thought it was funny. I thought it was kind of charming. <laughs> Oh, yeah, there we great. are. Yeah. Why do we have to do that? I was, yeah. go, I, was so, I was being, I was so cool for the last twenty minutes. Which, you, which are you most proud of? Um, I think. Well, uh, the one that's got this. The, can we take that down, please? <laughs> um, Phew. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, I think uh, uh, twenty-four hour party people has a very uh, is very. Uh, um, as a real sort of place in my heart yeah. because A, it's about the hometown where I grew up. Uh, I was there when that music was happening. I knew Tony Wilson really well. He was a friend of mine before I did the movie. You know, he's dead now. He was an important part of my growing up. The idea of, you know, grammar school boys who discovered art, you know, who discovered, uh, who are from sort of working class-ish backgrounds who discovered, you know, literature yeah. and poetry and, and opened our eyes to things and, and, and um, Tony Wilson was one of those people and so playing him in the movie was to me was real uh, uh, just uh, uh, to me I still can't quite believe I did it and uh, the, I love the film because it's um, it, it breaks the fourth wall breaks all these conventions and, and not only that but we I mean we, when we were doing it we were, it was a pretty crazy time and, uh, you know, when I th think back to that movie, Michael Winterbottom never says cut or action. He just starts rolling the camera. And sometimes I'd be chatting afterwards. I'd look across the room and go, oh, he's filming me. Without <laughs> it's just to set the camera up because I'm talking to someone who thinks it looks maybe someone I shouldn't be talking to. Him. He's, and he's, he's got the camera on me. But I, when I think back now, I can't remember what was in the film and what was us just hanging out together. Yeah. So it feels like reality and the movie all bled in, into each other. Yeah. Uh, so... I can't actually, I've not seen the film for about 20 years because to me it's all, it'd be like looking through a box of old photographs. It'd be too, like, poignant. Yeah, uh, yeah. So I've not seen it for 20 years, but it's the most important film to me. I saw it a couple of weeks ago and it is still absolutely brilliant. It's, 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 it's a wonderful piece of work. Oh, Adam McKay uh, cited it as a big influence on... Um, oh, wow, on the big short and, on, uh, and the new and one, Vice. Yeah, Vice, yeah. Yeah, yeah. It's a better film than Vice. <laughs> I couldn't possibly come. <laughs> Uh, Stan Nolly is currently in cinemas and it's really, really worth your time. It's a terrific piece of work. Ladies and gentlemen, please join me in thanking Steve Coogan. Thank you. So, thanks for listening. If you like the sound of the Mark Kermode Live in 3D show and you fancy coming along, it's every month at the BFI South Bank in London. Just go to the BFI box office online for tickets, but beware they do sell out very quickly. Or if you're anywhere near Newcastle on the 4th of February, that's Monday the 4th of February, the final show in my How Does It Feel tour comes to the Northern Stage in Newcastle on Monday. There are just a few seats left there. If you're interested, go to the Northern Stage website. Hope to see you at one of those shows soon. Hey, folks, I'm Mark Marin from the WTF Podcast, and this episode is brought to you by Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues, your ally to help tackle your allergy symptoms this season. I love the change of seasons, but nobody loves pollen and all those other things floating in the air that make you sneeze during this nice weather. Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues are hypoallergenic and allergist approved. So fight back against watery eyes and runny noses without worrying about irritating your skin. For this allergy season, grab Kleenex and face allergies head on.